Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on the Kushan Empire with Dr. Lauren Morris. Hello, everyone. I have with me today Dr. Lauren Morris, an archaeologist and historian of pre-Islamic Central Asia and Northwest India. A PhD graduate of the University of Munich and a committee member of the Hellenistic Central Asia Research Network, the bulk of her research focuses on the dealings of the Kushan Empire that occupied much of the former Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kingdoms from the 1st century BC to the 3rd century AD. And for this episode, she has taken the time to talk about just that. First off, let me just say thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss your work. Thank you for the invitation. I think we're going to have some fun. Absolutely. But uh, before we begin, would you care to give us a bit more about your background and what pushed you towards the study of the Kushans and Central Asia as a whole? (laughs) Okay. I mean, how far back do we go? uh, Okay. So I answered this first on the Central Asian side and then second on the Kushan side. So my undergrad background is actually in classical archaeology and the ancient history of the Greco-Roman world, uh, which I studied at the University of Sydney. But in one of my classes in my second year, it was called Ancient Mediterranean Lives, we had a lecture one day which looked at examples of Hellenistic royal cities, including the famous site of Ikhanum in Afghanistan, which of course could be well described as the the eastern royal capital of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. Now, I grew up in, in Commonwealth countries with fairly recent violent colonial histories that still fundamentally inform our lives there today. So my young mind, of course, was absolutely blown by the idea and cultural implications of this Greco-Macedonian colonial expansion and empire building in Afghanistan. And this is also when I really first became aware that Central Asia was really part of the broader ancient world. And then the Kushan thing came a little bit later. So my interest was sparked up again. It's about a year later, I was in London and I decided to visit this exhibition, Afghanistan Crossroads of the Ancient World, the British Museum. And of course, it was so fantastic to see material from Ihanum in the flesh on display. But I was totally struck by something else that day. And those were the objects that many imported that were deposited in a hoard at the site of Begram. So this is broadly dating to the Kushan period. So yeah, first, mid-first to fourth century CE. And I remember thinking, whoa, these objects, yeah, that were produced in the Roman world in this hoard, they're really weird. Why on earth would people in Kushan Central Asia want this stuff? And uh, this question uh, basically escalated into me pursuing a PhD at LMU Munich in pursuit of some answers. And so getting those answers, of course, involved a protracted and often really confused deep dive into the Kushans and trying to figure out what we actually know about them. And as I did this background research, two points began to become clearer to me right in this process. And so the first point is you know, this immense cultural dynamism of this period, right? I mean, the Kushan Empire was really at the center of Afro-Eurasia and the Kushan dynasty and the people they ruled, they cultivated contacts with you know, diversity of peoples near and far. And we see traces of the complex cultural and political history of Central Asia, as well as those contacts in this visual and material culture they left behind. But the second thing that became clear to me in this process was the dynamism of the historiography of the Kushans. And by this, I mean that even being able to nail down like basic facts about their political history has been really long scholarly process of negotiating really different bodies of evidence. I mean, since the Kushans were essentially rediscovered in the mid 19th century, and we still don't know so much. There is so much space for new discoveries, new ideas, and the critical reevaluation of long-held beliefs, right? And so this is also what pushed me into the study of the Kushans in Central Asia, like this potential to contribute to something interesting that is a work in progress and that's also been largely neglected and left at the fringes of major disciplines studied at universities today. But yeah, so since I defended my dissertation just over four years ago, I've been lucky enough to have had the opportunity to to do just this as a postdoctoral researcher uh, in an ERC project at the University of Freiburg called the Bazaar Project. There with my colleagues and our principal investigator, Siddha von Redden, we've been writing some handbooks about uh, various Afro-Eurasian empires and their economies between 300 BC to 300 CE. And ultimately, we're seeking to move beyond like a flattened you know, Silk Road paradigm of long distance trade across this space by rather seeking to understand how you know, the explosion of long distance trade in this period was actually facilitated by developments in and interfaces between different economies across Afro-Eurasia. 
So in this project, of course, I work on the economies of Hellenistic and Kushan Central Asia. And I'm really interested um, in this because, you know, in comparison to other parts of the ancient world, like the Greco-Roman world, there isn't really a strong, coherent tradition of economic history writing about this time and space in Western scholarship. And yeah, this is uh, where my interests now lie. The Kushans are considered one of the great empires of antiquity, though perhaps not as well known as the contemporary Roman, Parthian, or Han Chinese states. Can you give us a brief summation of their historical and geographical context for those that may not be as familiar with them? Yeah, okay, as brief as possible, right. So basically, uh, the Kushans were the ruling dynasty of an empire that emerged in the mid-first century CE in Bactria, and it fell by the mid-fourth century CE. So the empire is at its greatest extent in the mid-second century CE. It basically encompassed a space from southern Uzbekistan to northern India. And in terms of ancient places, more specifically, its nor northern core regions uh, were Bactria and Gandhara. So yeah, the northwest of the Indian subcontinent. And there was also yeah, a southern core region in Mathura, which is 100, around 150 kilometers south of Delhi. So before I might sort of briefly retell some political history, I just wanted to stress one thing. And this is that the name Kushan is really like a dynastic name, yeah, like Arsakid or Seleucid. It's not an ethnocultural or civic identity like Roman or Han. So when we talk about the Kushans, we should be clear whether we're talking about yeah, the ruling dynasty and their inner circle, yes, yeah, the Kushans, not the peoples that they ruled. Those peoples are best described by names like Bactrians and Indians. Yeah, so with that sort of out of the way, of course, the story of the Kushans starts bit earlier in the second century BCE when a mobile group that the Chinese knew as Daiyuezhe, so usually understood as Great Yuezhe, you know, all the precise etymology of the name remains debated. So if we piece together pieces of information that are conveyed in Chinese transmitted texts, especially uh, Han standard histories like Shiji, Hanshu, Hu Hanshu, uh, we basically learn that the Daiyuezhe was threatened by the Xiongnu and at least Part of Daiyuezhe undertook a westwards migration from their homeland, which was perhaps around modern Gansu in Western China. This is not really clear. And so, yeah, they ended up in northern Bactria after around the mid-2nd century BCE. And here they probably found, yeah, a back vacuum of power that was left by the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, which had you know, collapsed pretty recently. And they were able to set up some kind of control over part of this space. So in the following centuries, they divided their territories between something like uh, principalities that were led by these heads of clans called Yabgus, probably. And in the mid-first century CE, one of these rulers uh, of a clan, yeah, the Kushan clan, a certain Kujula Kadfi says, uh, he seized power from the rest and he started a program of military expansion across the Hindu Kush into parts of Gandhara. And so in that region, after the slow collapse of Indo-Greek kingdoms, there had been a diversity of Indo-Scythian, Indo-Parthian and local rulers that had been active until the Kushan invasion. And so when the Kushans, you know, moved across the Hindu Kush, this is basically where we can say the empire began. Kajula's successors uh, undertook further military campaigns uh, further deeper into India over time. And, you know, they certainly established rule in Mathura. And the most famous king of this dynasty, of course, was Kanishka, who ruled from around 127 to 151 CE. And uh, we know about him um, through a variety of sources, but one of the most important ones is the Rabatak inscription, which was only discovered in around 1993. And among other things, this inscription tells us yeah, that Kanishka conquers some of the great old cities of the Gangetic Valley. It's as far as Shrichampa in the east, yeah, so very far. Ah, but all things, yeah, must end. And uh, around in the year 230 CE, Vasudeva, the last main Kushan king, lost this critical heartland of Bactria to the Sasanians. And so there was a, a client kingdom set up there by the Sasanians, yeah, Kushan is Sasanian kingdom. And then uh, for the Kushans themselves, this period of imperial contraction follows. And, you know, finally, this, yeah, the great Kushan empire is just contracted to Gandhara and disintegrates with its last kings around the mid fourth century CE. What sort of sources do we have about the Kushans? Uh, did they leave behind any of their own accounts or important documents we can rely on? Or are there any histories written by the Chinese, Indian, or Greco-Roman authors that can maybe help fill in the details? Okay, this is a somewhat deceptively difficult question to answer really succinctly, but I will make a crack at it, right? So I should first say that it's useful not only to describe what our sources actually are, but what we can learn from them when we look at them. So 
you know, do we want to look, uh, learn about the kings and their political history, or do we want to know things about social life, about religion, about culture and the economy? So these are things to keep in mind when we discuss sources. So to speak very broadly, the main problem is that the Kushan dynasty and the people they ruled didn't really produce a tradition of truly historical literature. And so to learn more about them, we should look at a diversity of different kinds of other sources. So these include not only written sources, but also coinage, archaeology and art. So in respect to written sources, we can basically divide these into two different groups. The first group's what we could call, yeah, transmitted texts. They're essentially produced mostly by outsiders. So, uh, you know, in the Greco-Roman tradition, we have like relevant little pieces of uh, information in some works. Yeah, so it's a little bit, yeah, and Cassius Dio of interest, uh, Periplus, Justin, not so much. And then we have, yes, yeah, some uh, transmitted Indic texts, like I mean, the Sanskrit epic Mahabharata, which is a notoriously yeah, difficult to date and really not a truly historical source, but seems to contain some kind of elements of historicity in it, which we can interpret. But of course, uh, yeah, the main body of information and transmitted texts that we have is from these Han standard histories, which I've mentioned a bit earlier. So Shiji, Hanshu, Hu Hanshu. These standard histories, some of them have these chapters that deal with the so-called Western regions. Shiji, scribed records, uh, was compiled, you know, in the, uh, the early first century CE, uh, BCE, and then we have some chapters from Hanshu, documents of the Han, which was primarily compiled, yeah, in the early second century. And then we have a chapter in this later text, Hu Hanshu, documents of the later Han, which was compiled around the fifth century CE. But they tend to incorporate earlier pieces of evidence. Like the Shiji, for example, is so important because this is the earliest one, because it reports on this eyewitness account of Zhang Qian, who uh, took a mission uh, to the Western region seeking a political alliance in uh, around the 120s BCE, and it's where he reached places like Bactria. This is a, what we can mainly mine to get some information from political history. But our second sort of group of written sources are these contemporary written sources that were produced by the dynasty or its inner circle or by inhabitants of the Kushan Empire itself. So these are primarily religious inscriptions, or relig- inscriptions from religious context, so epigraphic sources. And we, they basically fall into two main groups and totally generalizing. So in terms of the dynasty itself and its history, the first and most obviously important group of documents in the Bactrian language. So that's the modern name of this Middle Iranian language that was spoken in Bactria. And uh, these are chiefly yeah, these, these important inscriptions that were erected at these royal image temples, Bagalangos in, in, in Bactria, so the mountains of the Hindu Kush. One of them was Sokotal, and the other one is Rabatak. And these tell us um, various things yeah, about the dynasty, um, their religious orientation, maybe have little bits of history and events in them. And in the Rabatak inscription specifically, we learn more about Kanishka's activities and his uh, really political orientation and ideology. So the second main group is primarily uh, religious inscriptions from Mathura and Gandhara in uh, Middle Indo-Aryan languages, specifically Gandhari, which is spoken in Gandhara, and epigraphical hybrid Sanskrit. And these are primarily donative inscriptions. A good deal of them are from Buddhist contexts. And these kinds of texts tell us about your religious practice, um, but also sometimes uh, about you know chronology because they make references to kings and relative dates in different eras. But they're specifically, I think, most important for understanding religion at the time. Then we have um, emerging more recently, um, sadly, primarily from the antiquities market, some you know, religious documents, early Buddhist manuscripts written on birch bark. And then some documentary texts have begun to emerge among that corpus too. So namely um, some scanned administrative legal documents, which are starting to tell us more things about monastic life in Gandhara, administration, law. So in terms of administrative, legal, economic documents produced in Bactria, we have almost nothing from this period. I mean, there are some fragments, for example, of some documentary texts in Bactrian written on papyrus, surprisingly, that were excavated at a fortress town called Campertepa on the Oxus. But yeah, they're so fragmentary, they're not possible to really understand. But then, of course, yeah, in the mid-3rd century, um, already in the Kushano-Sasanian period, we start to get a diversity of documentary texts written in Bactrian on parchment emerge that were found, uh, again, sadly, through illicit excavation. So I think it's really just a matter of time before a similar archive of documents is found uh, that dates to the Kushan period. I just hope that they're legally excavated. 
Then uh, we can look at coins, for example. The vast coinage that was produced by the Kushans is an absolutely critical source, yeah? not only for the study of their political history and chronology, but also their ideology, their religions of the state and the people they ruled and the economies. From the reign of the third king, Vima Kadfi says they were basically um, only minting in either gold, so the, the dinar, or in alloyed copper in a pretty restricted set of denominations. And so the study of Kushan coinage has been instrumental in figuring out even basic information about the dynasty, uh, including the chronology and the sequence of kings. If you examine overstrikes, for example, yeah, so when a later coin type is struck on an older one, this establishes a chronology, right? And this is, was critical, this kind of evidence for figuring out even the order in which the Kushan kings ruled. And the distribution of Kushan coinage can also tell us about yeah, the extent of the state and its economic network. So yeah, coins are a critical source. And finally then, I mean, we can consider, I think, uh, the biggest category, yeah, archaeology and art, or put differently, yeah, material and visual culture. Archaeology and art tell us about a diversity of things in life in the Kushan period. I mean, they can tell us about religion. Uh, we have temples excavated. We have plenty of uh, Buddhist monasteries, especially in Gandhar from this period. They can tell us about how people lived in different kinds of settlements and, and, and how where people chose to live changed over time. So settlement patterns. It tells us about, uh, you know, what kinds of objects people use in their daily lives. So I mean, this is like a, this is very good um, for much broader perspective questions, yeah, about, you know, culture, culture change and society. And so I, I realize this may all seem a bit complicated, but um, that's really the fun of it. With the study of the Kushans and with Central Asia and antiquity, we get this opportunity to engage with the diversity of sources that tell us about different parts of a bigger picture. And yeah, so if you want to get an overview of, um, you know, especially the relevant written sources uh, for Kushan political history, you can turn to a book edited by Hari Falk in 2015 called Kushan Histories and start from there. Parthians. The Kushans were initially nomadic dwellers of the steppes near the Gansu Corridor before migrating and settling down in northern Bactria in the 2nd century BC. What impact did their nomadic origin have on their society, whether it was expressed through their political system or through their material or artistic culture? I am glad you've asked this because I think there really needs to be more research into these questions. Basically, to give a short answer, I think there was some impact, but it's often pretty slippery uh, to really pin down. So part of the problem, to take a little step backwards, is the ethnocultural origins of the Kushan's ancestors, yeah, Dayuesha, I think these are still pretty obscure, right? And we likewise lack clarity about this uh, sedentarization process that they are assumed to have undertaken in Bactria. For example, yeah, in Zhang Qian's report on the Dai Yuezhe when he visited them in the late 2nd century CE, this was retold in Shi Qi, Dai Yuezhe is really explicitly called a mobile state. However, like on the other hand, Bactria, which they captured, is presented as this region of agriculturalists and fortified settlements. Okay, that being said, I mean, Bactria, of course, was constituted by diverse landscapes that are suitable not only for agriculture, but definitely also mobile pastoralisms. Both kinds of lifeways persisting in this space was the norm, and there were probably always mobile pastoralists or nomads within the empire. To understand yeah, the background, this is already quite difficult. But to really try to answer your question about this political system and self-representation, I think there's some aspects which we can try to interpret, yeah, speaking to their nomadic heritage. The difficulty is it's often hard to delineate whether these aspects truly represent some ties to a nomadic heritage rather than like widely shared practices and vocabularies of power in Iranian monarchs. To give some examples, right? I mean, the dress of Kushan kings and elites that we see depicted on sculpture, they wear, yeah, these long, heavy kaftans, uh, tunics, trousers, and these felt boots. And in scholarship, this is often glossed as nomadic. This, this could be so, but I mean, as uh, Fabrizio Sinisi has argued more recently, I mean, we could also in interpret this dress as something like traditional Bactrian Iranian dress. So it's often kind of hard to say. Uh, I mean, another example um, in regards to their political system, you know, one of our important sources, yeah, this is inscribed Bactrian inscription on a silver dish that was uh, dedicated probably to a temple in Bactria, unfortunately known also from the antiquities market. 
which describes the dedication of this dish after the conquest, uh, Kanishka's conquest into northern India. And it makes this interesting reference to basically a circle of his servants around the king. And so these figures, I mean, we could point to multiple origins, yeah? They could represent something like these war bands that surrounded and supported nomadic rules of the steppe. But they could also reflect an institution like the servants, yeah, Bandaka of, of, of Darius, the Achaemenid king, or the Hellenistic Philoi. Third example of this kind of thing, right, is the Kushans might have also ruled peripatetically between different courts located in different regional capitals of their empire. And I mean, there's two main reasons we can suspect this. I mean, the first is that there doesn't seem actually to be a single capital unequivocally in this entire empire. So this is already good. And then second, uh, we have this later testimony, um, a legend that was told to a Chinese Buddhist pilgrim in the 7th century CE, which, I mean, essentially suggests that Begram was seen as an appropriate summer residence in the Kushan period. Peshawar was good for autumn and spring and India was good for winter. So in this kind of framework, it's, it's quite tempting to interpret like a nomadic element. But of course, you know, plenty of other empires across the ancient world had peripatetic courts, I mean, including the Achaemenids, Seleucids, Arsacids. And the practice can totally be interpreted in other ways without recourse to a nomadic heritage. So it's typically kind of hard to say, but I think there must be some kind of connection there. In addition to their heritage of the steppes, they were also successors to the Greek kingdoms that had ruled Bactria and northwestern India for a few centuries by that point. How did the legacy of Greek rule manifest itself with the Kushans? Was it genuine Philhellenism or merely an artifact to pay homage to? I guess I'd say that the legacy of Greek rule played out for the Kushans in two main ways. Basically, the first way, right? Greek rule impacted specific aspects of the cultural fabric of Bactria and northwestern India in the long term, especially in elite spheres. But despite these yeah, processes of integration and familiarization, I think there was also really a concept that Greeks and Greekness were somehow distinct, yeah, ethnically and culturally still different. And the Kushans actually reacted to that in their coinage and epigraphy. To elaborate on that first point of long-term changes, as I think your listeners will well know by now if they followed your series, right? I mean, the Greek kingdoms instigated military conquest, Hellenistic rule, some introduction of colonists, and yeah, heightened connectivity between Central Asia and the wider Hellenistic world. And so we see these broader long-term impacts on demography, religious practice, the use of language, monetary practice, languages of power, and visual and material culture. So to give some examples, yeah, I mean, Greek was clearly still spoken by at least a small group of people in Bactria until around the second century CE. And the Bactrian language itself, yeah, an Iranian language was transcribed with a modified version of the Greek script. The model of Kushan coinage also uh, is an indirect descendant of Hellenistic models. And this was also, of course, mediated through Indo-Scythian and Indo-Parthian coinage that had been issued in Gandhara in the interim. Early Kushan coinage, yeah, before Kanishka's reforms even featured Greek inscriptions and depictions of Greek gods who, are, however, were kind of intended to really represent Iranian ones, right, before they did this themselves. Of course, in terms of visual and material culture, uh, much of Gandharan Buddhist sculpture is famously informed by Hellenistic or broadly classical stylistic and iconographic norms. Even archaeologically, we see that preferences for elite tableware in these regions were shaped in the long term by forms that were introduced in the Hellenistic period. Not exclusively, but we see these long-term patterns. And yet, the integration of these elements into the like, broader long-term cultural processes and behaviours it still didn't really make them semantically meaningless, right? They weren't just totally integrated. Part of the pie you could take from, right? Like on the contrary, you're still long after the fall of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. We have designations like Yona in Gandhari, Yonago in Bactrian, um, in, you know, surviving epigraphy of the time. And these refer to like an ethnonym, a regional era, and the Greek language even in these inscriptions. So people knew that some things were not local, but they were Greek even a long time afterwards, and they called them that, and that meant something. And so this kind of knowledge seems to have impacted how the Kushans chose to represent themselves as kings, right? There seems to have been some kind of political, ideological reform in the reign of Kanishka. When this king chose to have his coinage feature, Bactrian inscriptions, and gods, not, not Greek ones, it's a big change. And 
you know, likewise, the Rabbitak inscription, which was you know, erected in Kanishka's reign, it narrates a number of events that, you know, putatively occurred in the first year of his rule, right? So he inaugurated a new era for measuring time and he replaced the Yona, you know, Greek era that had been in official use until then. And there is a reference to issuing a Greek Yonako edict and putting into Aryan, yeah, which means the Bactrian language here, but also probably something more symbolic about this elevated character of the text. Anyway, there is a lot to unpack from that inscription, but to put it more simply, there is clearly some kind of positioning here towards a royal Iranian identity, really against a Greek one. How to interpret the implications of this positioning is still a little tricky, right? I think clearly the Rabbitak inscription speaks to the potency of the social memory of Greek rule, but Sheryl Fussman posited already in 1976, before we even knew about this inscription, that there was an anti-Greek political reaction in the Kushan period. And this therefore instigated the self-presentation of the Kushan kings as an Iranian indigenous dynasty, really Iranian Bactrian one. Uh, now, I wouldn't be so emphatic on this point about yeah, anti-Greekness. Yeah, I mean, I would probably rather say that the Kushans realized that presenting themselves as Iranian kings was a more effective way to communicate their legitimacy to their constituents in Bactria. And this is perhaps even how they, they identified themselves. Yeah, they'd been in Bactria for a long time. And uh, this all being said, I'd argue that broadly Hellenistic styled visual and material culture, it still remained attractive, you know, nonetheless to local elites during this period. And this again, must be connected to some kind of shared social memory of Greek rule and probably also ideas of power and distinction that were connected with this. You know, this, I think, helps to explain you know, the Hellenistic or classical elements in Gandharan art, uh, as well as the consumption of luxury goods from the Roman world in Kushan Bactria and Gandhara, although we still have few that we know of besides the Begram Horde. If we want to talk about these practices as an example, as a true example of Hellenism, it's another question, right? I mean, Hellenism, let alone Philhellenism, yeah, is a really imprecise term that tends to be used to refer to Greek culture as well as the use of Greek cultural elements by non-Greeks, although it's been used in so many different ways, as my uh, colleague in Freiburg, Melinda, who has explored in her research. So in a way, for this framework, the Hellenism shoe fits, right? But I think it might actually, my personal opinion, yeah, is it's more interesting to maybe deprivilege or avoid the term Hellenism and rather just consider the adaptation of Greek cultural elements in this space as just part of a broader fabric of society, especially in, you know, among elite social groups that use the diversity of cultural elements. Perhaps one of the most important legacies of the Kushans is their connection to Buddhism. Could you delve a little more about the relationship between them and the propagation of one of the great religions of world history? This is such a big question. The Kushans are often linked with the propagation of Buddhism, but how accurate is this, right? So Buddhism reached Gandhara in the third century BCE, and it became a dominant religion over the following centuries. And it's also true that in the Kushan period, there really seems to have been an explosion in the number of Buddhist monasteries that were being built in Gandhara, and likewise in the production of sculpture, you know, Gandharana, that was produced to adorn them. And additionally, uh, we also see that the spread of Buddhism into Southern Central Asia and China like gains momentum in this period. But how much do the Kushans really have to do with this? And we have to ask, were they really supporters of Buddhism? Well, the problem is that our contemporary sources and later Buddhist legends tend to tell two kind of different stories. So on the side of contemporary sources, to start with, there's remarkably little evidence that the Kushans directly supported Buddhism. We have some very few exceptions that tend to feature prominently in the discussion. Of course, we have these few rare uh, issues of coins that were minted by Kanishka that featured images of the Buddha on the reverse. And then we have an inscribed casket that was found in the stupa of Shajiki Dari that makes clear that this was the stupa of the monastery of Kanishka uh, that was established outside Kanishkapura, so yeah, modern Peshawar. And then we also have a monastery named for the King Huvishka in Mathura, India. However, it's important to note a couple of things. And the first is that these monasteries named for the kings don't actually record the king personally making donations. Rather, the people who did this, yeah, the agents, they're monastic staff or monks. So there's also a fragmented, illicitly excavated manuscript from Gandhara that has been published more recently. And this appears to be an accounting document, and it ends with a you know, possible reference to the King Vimakad Fises. But what the reference means here is really unclear. 
Then if we actually turn to official documents and the temples produced by the Kushan dynasty, we get a totally different picture. The Kushans really had their own pantheon of gods, one which mixed Bactrian, Iranian, I think we can say yeah, Zoroastrian gods, and they depicted this pantheon on their coins almost exclusively, with some exceptions like the Buddha occasionally. And they described these, this pantheon and their inscriptions, and they created image temples in Bactria to celebrate them, like the ones at Zorkotal and Rabatak. And so like this mountain of evidence on this side makes it pretty clear that we really can't say that the Kushan kings were Buddhist. However, the picture presented by later Buddhist legends is really different. So from around the 5th century CE, so really after the fall of the empire, quite afterward, these legends tend to insist that Kanishka was a Buddhist. And there's stories about this Kanishka stupa and legends associated with it. And we hear them be retold by later Chinese Buddhist pilgrims. And there's also a particularly important tale about how Kanishka supposedly convened a fourth Buddhist council in Kashmir. Ah, there's many other legends too. Basically, there's been a lot of debate about how to interpret them. But I think and I agree yeah, that they could be appropriately called a pious fabrication, meaning that they're basically pseudo-historical legends to reiterate the legitimacy of Buddhism. Instead, I mean, who was responsible? There is a lot of evidence that the driving force behind the flourishing and spread of Buddhism from Gandhara was actually the patronage of local elites, both before and during the Kushan period. So the, the hundreds of donative inscriptions we have that are relevant, you know, from before and during this period, these tend to categorically name such local elites as donors, not Kushan kings. And these figures are also sometimes mentioned in contemporary Buddhist literature from manuscripts which have been discovered. And they were probably even depicted on some of the sculpture that adorned Buddhist mon monuments. These local elites were the ones who provided resources to monasteries and who facilitated the spread of Buddhism. So then we can like circle back a bit and ask if the Kushas did anything at all. Well, I mean, okay, to be fair, we could say that they indirectly helped this process in a number of ways, right? Uh, clearly, they had some kind of tolerant policy towards the religions incorporated into their empire. Their incorporation of Bactria and Gandhara into you know, a single polity and the Kushan empire also probably made it easier and safer to move between these regions. Why not? And um, the prosperous economy they presided over. Uh, this probably helped to facilitate the accumulation of surplus wealth by local elites that enabled them to support monasteries. And it's worth mentioning that monasteries themselves also became very powerful and wealthy institutions in this period. Direct royal support of Buddhism remained, I think, as a rule, really, really limited. have often been characterized as, whether incorrectly or otherwise, the middlemen of the Silk Roots, acting as the go-between Han China, Parthia, and Rome. What role did they play in facilitating the connectivity between the various states of Eurasia? And maybe what goods or services did they have to offer that attracted them? I want to start by picking apart where this characterization of Kushan middlemen enabling and profiting from Silk Road transit trade comes from, because actually there's not really a lot of basis for it. The core of the idea comes from the late 19th century when we still knew really, really little about the Kushans. So essentially, a scholar called Alexander Cunningham proposed that there was a connection between the weight systems of the Kushan gold coin, the dinar, and the Roman arius. Specifically, this dinar, right, was introduced in the late 1st century CE under the Kushan king Vimakadphises. It weighed around 8 grams, and the Roman arius comparatively weighed kind of less. It changed in weight over time, of course, from around 7.85 to 7.2 grams over the Roman imperial period. So Cunningham's proposal was then just taken up by all these other scholars. And so some of them began to suggest that Kushan gold coins were in fact melt, uh, minted from melted down Roman Ari, and that the function of Kushan gold itself was to facilitate trade with Roman agents by being basically exchangeable with their coins. Well, even though this connection has been more recently debunked on both metrological, so weight and compositional grounds, yeah, they have different trace elements in the coinages, this idea has still influenced a lot of beliefs about the Kushan Empire. Put short and perhaps a little ungenerously, a lot of the reasoning seems to follow the lines of, okay, well, the Kushan Empire is in the middle of Eurasia, the Silk Road ran through there, the economy seems to be prosperous during this period, but we don't know much about the Kushan Empire. 
Therefore, the Kushan Empire was built on controlling long-distance trade routes that ran through it, and they were facilitating and profiting from this trade as middlemen. And I must say, I mean, these kinds of assumptions, they've fed into mapping and narratives about the empire in ways that are surprising, right? So for example, it's very common to find assertions that the empire incorporated the the port of Babarakon in northwest India. I mean, even though we have really no evidence that the Kushans ever ruled there, yeah, it's purely an assumption based on this characterization of Kushan middlemen. And I guess so these ideas have stayed popular because there seems to be this broader conception of Central Asia as like a transit zone or, you know, crossroads of the ancient world and You know, while it's good on the one hand that ancient historians are becoming increasingly aware of this space and its importance, I'm also not the biggest fan of this crossroads concept because, I mean, it still implicitly imagines Central Asia as this space between, you know, real entities where real entities meet. And it does little little justice to like local internal developments in the region's history. And then I can add, I mean, the idea of any people acting as middlemen of the Silk Road or roads, it's an artifact of the problems of the concept of the Silk Road itself. Of course, the Silk Road never existed. It's a modern concept that was invented in the late 19th century and has only become really popular in the last few decades. You know, as Hodadad Rezahani has pointed out, well, over 10 years ago, this concept is so problematic because it tends to place really undue weight on the places at the supposed ends of the Silk Road, right? Roman China. And it also has little capacity to really add to our understanding of developments in the regions and the places in between where the Silk Road ran across. When you put a regional perspective. When you look first at Central Asia, and then you might get a different picture. So you could say that not the Kushans themselves, but agents in the Kushan empire facilitated long distance connectivity like agents in any other territory really did. Of course, trade certainly went through these territories. And like anywhere else, there must have been Bactrian and Indian merchants. We lack evidence for most of this, but they probably operated collectively as associations. And perhaps these associations were based on things like kinship. And it's hard to say, yeah. It's a little trickier then to pin down precisely what was really exported from the Kushan Empire uh, in the framework of long distance trade. Uh, We can say that Kushan coinage seems to be an important medium of exchange regionally because we not only find Kushan gold coinage beyond imperial boundaries sometimes, but even copper alloy coinage, which is quite interesting because it's usually believed that copper alloy coinage does not travel. This was clearly being used as a medium of exchange in a wider context, so we could say that this is something they contributed. But in terms of Bactria, for example, and contributions to long-distance trade, We have to still speak at this period of a fairly small amount of trade in luxury goods, right? I mean, bulk trade over long distances, especially land, seems to have been fairly limited. And so some exports that were produced in Bactria in this period, we could say perhaps metalwork, although this is very hard to say. We could say, I think, definitely luxurious carpets. I mean, these may have been exchanged in a political context, but there are carpets that have been found in Noyanul in Mongolia, in Xiongnu royal tombs that were presumably produced in Bactria around 1st century BCE, 1st century CE. We also have some interesting evidence for the trade in horses, actually, in the Kushan period, from Bactria, essentially, to perhaps northern India and even beyond into Southeast Asia. And this is, of course, very difficult to historically interpret, but basically we have some kind of oblique references to this in texts like the Mahabharata, so knowledge that horses were produced in this area. We have references to like Eurasia traders bringing horses, princely gifts perhaps to Southeast Asia in like later Chinese texts. And um, if we think from a later example around the 15th century, I mean, nomads, mobile pastoralists in Afghanistan, for example, really managed this kind of long distance trade of things like horses into India and became enormously wealthy from it. Probably one of the most important archaeological finds related to the Kashans is the so-called Bagram Horde. Can you talk about your research on this horde and what significance it has to our understanding of the Kushans and their connection to the rest of the Eurasian states? Begram was really the start of my journey with the Kushans, seeing this exhibition at the British Museum and really having too many unanswered questions. 
So a little bit of background, right? The Begram Hoard includes over 500 objects that were produced across ancient Afro-Eurasia and that had been deposited largely within two sealed rooms of a building, Site 2 structure, at the site of Begram, which is located around 60 kilometers north of Kabul. And this was the ancient city of Kapisi and perhaps the summer capital of the Kushan Empire. It was at least uh, certainly ruled by a local governor in this period and Kushan Copper Mint was located there. So this was an important city. And the Begram Horde, it roughly dates to the Kushan period, but we'll explore in a minute why that's a bit complicated. This hoard is so interesting because of the material it has in it. It is just like an explosion of sensational material. We have ivory footstools, disassembled furniture legs, panels from chair backs that we are adorned, you know, with low relief decorative carvings, yeah, that were produced somewhere in the Indian subcontinent. I mean, I think perhaps, yeah, Western Central India. There were also you know, a dozen lacquerware boxes and cups that had been manufactured in state and private workshops of Han China. Also some locally made bronze vessels. There were some worked ostrich eggs and some glazed pottery, perhaps from Parthian Mesopotamia. But the most diverse and plentiful group of you know, individual objects in this hoard were actually made in the Roman Mediterranean. You know, these included almost you know, 200 glass vessels that were produced through like a diversity of manufacturing and decorative techniques. We have painted glass, cut glass, trail glass, all kinds. Yeah. And then we have loads of bronze basins. We have these elaborate, unique bronze aquariums, which have like mobile elements when you, when you move them. We have these uh, bronze uh, figural sort of balsamaria. We have over 50 plaster casts that were taken from designs from metalwork and vessels, like really luxurious vessels, like uh, from alabaster, porphyry and rock crystal. So the interest of this material is so clear, right? I mean, we have amazing stuff from all over Afro-Eurasia coming together in one find. It's like, again, an explosion of material. The problem is that the published archaeological data pertaining to this incredible find it's really problematic and difficult to interpret. It was discovered on the eve of World War II by archaeologists of the French archaeological delegation in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, the three primary excavators, Joseph Akin, Riakin, and Jean Carl, they all died in 1941. And so the published documentation we have for their excavations of Begram, I mean, we really have for the Horde a preliminary and a posthumous report only. And so I mean, these reports, they have wonderful photography, yeah, great art historical essays from leading experts at the time, but they also have very, very little, you know, contextual archaeological information, right, which makes it really difficult to interpret, you know, what, what we're looking at in terms of this archaeological find, how it was deposited. Most scholarship about this, this hoard, I mean, is being concerned with the questions of its date, you know, what it actually is. So is it a merchant's cash or a palatial treasure? And what does it tell us about the world? I mean, there's been a huge amount of debate. We basically, on the date side, we have, you know, two different positions. Scholars sort of tending to be informed about the production dates of the objects within the hoard. So they compare them to known excavated examples and try to date the material within it. One group of people support that the hoard objects can date perhaps so from an early period, so maybe like you know, first century CE onwards until even the third or fourth century CE, that they were produced over a long period of time and you know, they're not coeval. However, you know, a number of more recent publications have basically maintained that the hoard objects were produced over a shorter period of time or that they're even, they were even produced at the same time, dating to have perhaps a more limited range in the first century CE. And so the most influential scholar of the latter position has been Sanjo Mandale, who has suggested, yeah, that the hoard may represent an abandoned trader's stock that was captured in mid-transit, so captured, I mean, like deposited along long-distance trade routes, so, you know, those of the Silk Road, and Begram thus should have been, you know, a node in this transit trade network, and thus implicitly the Begram hoard should tell us about broader patterns of exchange across Eurasia along the Silk Road. On the other hand, I mean, the more traditional interpretation, which was uh, supported by the colleagues of the excavators um, later, was that the hoard, I mean, it should be something like the remains of a palatial treasury that was abandoned uh, in anticipation of a Kushan and Sasanian invasion, maybe because the objects were too big to take with them. Wanting to pin down some final answers or attempting to pin down some final answers, I decided to look, you know, comprehensively at the contents and context of the hoard. And by context, I mean historically, culturally, and especially archaeologically. And to do this, I used also some unpublished archival material that was preserved at the Musée Guimet in Paris. 
And so uh, it was a long journey, yeah, by, by systematically picking through this material like, from the ground up. I found out a number of things, and I'm not going to list all of them, but I'll tell you some of the most relevant ones for us today. What does Begram tell us about the Kushan period? The first is that the hoard was definitely deposited at least in the second half of the third century CE, perhaps later, right? And I've been able to show this by re-identifying some Vasudeva imitation coins that had been deposited in one of the hoard rooms, room 10, at the same level as the objects, yeah? So this gives us a term as post-quam. So, I mean, this date debate is not entirely resolved, yeah, in some way, but it at least keeps the long date open. In my view, yeah, having gone through all the material, I think that the diversity of objects that were deposited in the horror date from perhaps even the late first century BC to at least the late third century CE, yeah, but there's probably some leeway on either side. Uh, second, there is also a lot of evidence that many of the hoard objects were in poor and incomplete condition when they'd been deposited. And many like really show signs of use and interaction on them. And so this indicates that they had been kept and used in some respect for a long time. So, I mean, it's clear already from the date and the evidence for use. I mean, these, these can't be traders' goods that were intended for further distribution. I mean, reflecting on the, the popularity of this theory, I mean, I think the only reason why it was so popular is because of this characterization of Kushan Milamed, which I've complained a little bit about earlier. Uh, third, yeah, I mean, I debated a little bit about what kind of intentional deposit this, this deposit actually is, because, I mean, it was always assumed that it must function in some kind of utilitarian purpose. There's been a lot of scholarship about hoards, so we can define hoards as, you know, intentional depositions, usually of more than one object, because then we can see intentionality. And we see them all throughout the ancient world, human history, things like coin hoards, treasure hoards. I mean, the problem is there's been a lot of scholarship basically wrangling, especially in respect to Bronze Age hoards, whether we can describe them as utilitarian in function, so like for safekeeping or for a trader or something like this, or if they're rather ritual in function, right? If they could be deposited in a ritual manner as an offering and they weren't meant to be recovered. And so I return to this debate a little bit with respect to the Begram hoard, because of course, I mean, we can call it a hoard because it's a group of objects, uh, at least two of the rooms, this group of objects was sealed. And um, there is, of course, another room which is unsealed. So this already starts to present a little bit of a problem. The deposition of these objects probably occurs uh, at least in the late third century or perhaps even the fourth century CE and probably coincides with a process of deurbanization in uh, the wider city of Begram, which did not need to have been instigated by an invasion, right? This is uh, a perennial explanation. So, I mean, the question is, I mean, what is the building that these objects were found in? I mean, it's usually assumed that it was some kind of elite house. And I think one can make the argument. You can compare them to a the site two structure to houses from Dalversion Tepe of the Kushan period in northern Bactria. But, you know, as I, as I went on, I became increasingly dissatisfied with this interpretation. And after a discussion with an Italian colleague called Luca Maria Olivieri, I start to realize um, and agree that perhaps, in fact, we may be looking at something like a religious context, like an urban temple. And so I'm going to leave that question for later research, because this is something that I think warrants further exploration. Even though the precise context of this deposition is not entirely clear. I have essentially made the argument that these objects can still tell us about something. And that something is the local consumption preferences of elites in Kushan, Central Asia. And so I think the Begram Hoard can be at least described yeah, as an intergenerational collection of, of valuable goods that were accumulated by elites. And it's significant then because it provides this unique evidence for, for patterns of elite consumption of what are largely yeah, imported luxury and prestige goods in this space in Kushan, Central Asia. And so, I mean, I've made the argument that these, uh, these hoard objects, they suggest the emergence of a shared culture of consumption among local elites, and that this wasn't simply, you know, the result of undifferentiated cosmopolitan taste where, you know, trade routes are passing through and they take a little bit here and a little bit here. No, I mean, these to me are reflective of very specific local patterns of demand. Of course, you have to imagine that people don't just want things because they're exotic, right? I mean, these imported goods must have some capacity to commu communicate distinction. They must mean something locally and associations must have been held about them and they must have been useful, yeah, when incorporated into local social practices. The big question for me was actually always the stuff from the Roman Mediterranean. And my conclusion, you know, at the end of the day, after all of this work, I mean, 
the objects produced in the Roman Mediterranean are so interesting because we have such little evidence for direct contact between agents of the Kushan and Roman empires. Yeah, And what we do have is very complicated to interpret. But it's not really enough to imagine that these associations of prestige, this desire for this material was instigated by so much regular contact. No, instead, I mean, I think the, the obvious solution is that these objects were probably really read as rather Greek, yeah? And they were probably desired with reference to the social memory of Greek rule in Hellenistic Central Asia. We have drinking cups, which were probably incorporated into local drinking and craft production practices. This is really interesting to me because it presents a totally different picture than this like long-standing characterization of Kushan middlemen, right? And their profiteering coordination of transit trade on the Silk Road. And of course, Begram is usually cited as a key example of this. Instead, the specific consumption preferences of local elites in this space, they must have driven a good amount of highly directed trade towards this region. And they were able to communicate their consumption preferences over incredibly wide spaces to places like Roman Egypt, to places like probably Western India. And this is a really interesting point because it has important implications for how we understand the organization of ancient long distance exchange. And with that, I think this is an excellent place to end our discussion. And once again, I would like to thank you for taking the time to come on the show and talk about the Kashans. It's a personal favorite topic of mine. And would you be able to share with my listeners any of your past papers or articles? Or are there any websites or social media accounts you could contribute? Yeah, of course. So um, I'd like to point to the latest publication of the Bazaar Projects Handbook. So this is the Handbook of Ancient Afro-Eurasian Economies, Volume 2, Local, Regional and Imperial Economies. And here I've written a few chapters about economic development and the structure of the economy and economic activity in Hellenistic and Kushan Central Asia, especially Bactria and Gandhara during 300 BCE to 300 CE. So this is all available on open access. So I think we can provide a link. I also recently published digitally my revised PhD dissertation on the Begram Hort. So if you would like to hear more, uh, you are very welcome to read it. You can access it on LME Munich's online e-dissertation repository. And of course, I'd like to point to a little blog that I maintain. Uh, it's called Central Asia and Antiquity Online, uh, where I uh, provide links to um, upcoming events, conferences, when they happen again in person, and uh, new publications relating to our field. I am happy to include links to all of these in my podcast description and the episode notes on my website. And I strongly encourage all listeners who are interested in both the Kushans and beyond the Hellenistic period to please check those out. In the meanwhile, thank you all for listening, and you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>